Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal, Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We continue our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser on Hans Urs von Balthasar's The Moment of Christian Witness. Dr. Hauser joined the faculty of DeSales University in 1999 and was promoted to the rank of tenured professor in 2010. He holds a doctoral degree from Marquette University with a specialization in fundamental theology. His book publications include Hans Urs von Balthasar and Protestantism, the ecumenical implications of his theological style. How Balthasar Changed My Mind, co-edited with Larry Chapp, and Hans Urs von Balthasar, A Guide for the Perplexed. He has scholarly articles published in Communio, Nova Edvetera, and the Josephium Journal of Theology. In the moment of Christian witness, Hans Urs von Balthasar seeks to aid all those who are challenged both spiritually and intellectually by the call of Christ and the difficulties faced by a world hostile to Christianity. With a rich and deep spirituality, along with solid biblical exegesis, he counters an age of spiritual fads, self-centered goodisms, and reveals to the reader the origins of all those troubling elements in Christianity which claim that the real Jesus Christ is unknowable, the Gospels as merely the confused reflections of later Christians, and that Christian tradition is a perpetuation of mythology. Balthazar will show that it's only through the embrace of the cross of Christ Jesus that the heart and mind can be illuminated by truth and offer an authentic Christian witness in today's world. We now continue our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser on the moment of Christian witness. We're going to continue our conversation on the moment of Christian witness. And many would say that we are living that moment right now. Yeah, I mean, and again, I think that's exactly what Balthazar sort of wants to say in the book, is that if you are a Christian living in a time before the eschaton, you are going to run into a world that, for various reasons, thinks you're the enemy. And you have to be prepared to negotiate those waters. And, uh, and what's just kind of beautiful about Balthazar's thought is he doesn't want to endorse us, therefore, running from the world. But nor does he want us to simply join hands with the world as if everybody's already sort of a Christian. He loves that analogy that, that Jesus uses in the Gospels where he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So we're different. We have to go into the world. We can't run away, but we have to go in the world knowing that we have a different way of conceiving reality than they do and, and learning how to negotiate that. And there's, there's going to be no easy way. Boy, when you talk about no easy way, when you look 
at how Christians in previous generations have had to try to deal with that. The most relevant, right, immediately for many of us is the experience of the 20th century. Yeah, right. Whether in the face of communism uh, in the Soviet Union or in the face of fascism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in all the isms. The one thing that the Christian maybe had the advantage of in those regimes is that at least you knew that they were sort of diabolical. Mm. And I wonder if our situation right now isn't actually more complicated because the system I think that we're up against is very much a system that claims to be a system of love. Right. You know, we, we see everywhere you drive, you see these bumper stickers or things in people's windows of their houses, love wins. And of course, I agree with that, but I'm afraid what these people mean by love wins and what I mean by it might be different. I think that's why it's important to go back and take a look at how we got here. Because as you said, the diabolical, I'm not trying to use inflammatory language, but it's, it, I think that diabolical, the division, sure. it adapts. Yeah. It morphs. That's right. And it will use the need of the many to feed itself. I, I know that sounds so inflammatory and so dramatic, but those isms you spoke of that were manifested in the 20th century, you can back it up to the 19th century, the 1800s, yes. 1700s. Yeah. And it all started with the, the manifestation of a philosophical discourse. They thought it was just, you know, well, let's have these intellectual exercises. Right. And yet they took on their own life, didn't they? Yeah. And, and that's a good way of, of entering into this, maybe, is to think about modernity. Uh, Augustine Del Noce, who is a great Italian philosopher who's no longer with us, says that modernity could be summarized in the rejection of the medieval synthesis. And that's a really, I think, good way of, of thinking about it, because we started out here talking about the diabolical, and you rightly pointed out what diabolical means is to precisely tear things apart. It's the opposite of symbolic, right? So symbolic means this thing is always linked to that other thing. If I see a human being, for instance, as, as an image of God, I can't understand a human being without understanding God, because you can't understand the image of something without referring to the thing, right? So a symbol of something is a thing that represents, like the Eucharist is a real symbol of the body and blood of Christ. And we, as Catholics, shouldn't be afraid to call it a symbol if we understand what symbol means. A symbol makes present what is otherwise absent. But what diabolical does is precisely to take an aspect of reality and separate that aspect of reality from what it symbolizes. And that's what happens in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they think that that fruit is something that's simply theirs and is not a gift for which they have to be grateful. And so they lose the symbolism of what God has given them. They no longer see creation as a gift. They see it as something that is just rightfully theirs. And so that'll help us, I think, understand early modernity, if you think about it, we distinguish three phases of it, but they're all of a piece in early modernity. And that is the political piece, the scientific piece, and the philosophical piece. We, we can think of like modern philosophers, we think of modern scientists, and we think of modern political philosophers, but they're all in bed together. It's very important to remember that like Bacon, uh, Francis Bacon was Hobbes' secretary. Locke and Bacon were good friends, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So all these people that are doing philosophy are also doing science and they're also doing politics. 
And in each of the three phases or each of the three things, what we notice is common is an attempt to take something that is intimately linked with something else in the Middle Ages. So for instance, church and state, you know, are much closer together in the Middle Ages and to take them and split them apart. Or let's think about nature for a second. In the Middle Ages, nature is an image of God. It gives us witness to God. You know, they're going to quote that thing from the book of wisdom or the book of Romans that anybody who understands creation can see by association or implicitly the creator at the same time. And so modern science wants to take nature and say, let's bracket nature as a kind of metaphysical reality. And let's just see what it looks like if we treat it kind of as a machine. And then modern politics is the attempt to take the state and, and make sure that it doesn't have to be accountable to or beholden to a particular faith system. You know what I mean? And we could, we could go through all the different manifestations of modernity, but to call it diabolical, therefore, is not being hyperbolic. It's, it's just what it is. It simply is the attempt to divorce things that were once held together. Now, I'm not saying that the best thing then is to go back to the Middle Ages, because unfortunately, sometimes the way things were held together in the Middle Ages were precisely destructive, and that's precisely what modernity is reacting against. You know, overreaches on the part of the church, overreaches on the part of uh, science, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and to kind of keep things more distinct. So there's something that modernity is trying to achieve that is good, but the system that underlies it that Balthazar is going to talk about in this book is problematic. And I think it's important for us to recall, uh, while this thought is developing and the sciences are developing, the world is changing dramatically. Yeah. Not necessarily as a result of the thought, but yet it is becomes a, so much a part of it. And I'm thinking of n- not only of the attaining of lands and the co- growth of countries in the 1700s, but then you have in the 1800s the rise of the Industrial Revolution. And Absolutely, yeah. It changes everything on how man operates with not right. only within society, but within their own families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, from top to bottom, uh, so to speak. I think what we start to experience is this emancipation of the human person, if you will, from the natural order. The, the desire to have the human being sort of independent of the natural order. And Kant, we'll talk about Kant in a little bit, but Kant is, is especially guilty of this. He finds freedom only in the human subject. And the rest of nature is Newtonian. It's determined, you know, and that's precisely why he has to demand a totally autonomous notion of freedom is because everything else in Kant's universe is absolutely determined by inexorable laws of physics. Um, he's thoroughgoing Newtonian in his science, and then he's an absolute voluntarist in his understanding of freedom. And those two things are opposites. So the, the human person and nature get sort of juxtaposed with each other. Whereas in the Middle Ages, the philosophy of the Middle Ages, the human person was a microcosm. They were at home in the order of nature because the same reason that pervaded nature also pervaded the human person. Would you say at this time, there is just a loss of the sense of transcendence, that there is something greater outside of the individual? Once you start stripping away the, the aura, as it were, of creation, yeah, yeah, you begin to lose the sense of something beyond ourselves. 
And it becomes all about ourselves. Yeah, this is super interesting. And this is where I think Kant becomes a fascinating figure because Kant is a pietist. He's raised in a pietistic family and he has fond memories of his pietistic mother and, and all of that stuff. And he wants to maintain some of that pietism, you know, that kind of God is within me sort of movement. You know what I mean? So the pietists mm -hmm. were not into super organized religion and, and all of that. It was like a more of a feeling. It was at the level of emotions and feeling that you experience God. And so, so sort of what Kant does is a double move. And, and the double move is, is sort of contradictory. And it does two things at once, which I think we modern people still very much do. So on the one hand, Kant is going to limit the scope of reason. Like, what can I know? And for Thomas Aquinas, knowing was something that always implicitly involved God because things were first ideas in the mind of God. And only then it, through encountering um, sensible objects in nature, things, Aquinas says we know those things when we know them in some sense, we implicitly know God because they were first ideas in the mind of God. So there's a very intimate uh, connection between God and the act of knowing for, for Thomas. For Kant, who subscribes to modern empiricism to a degree, right? And he's been influenced by Hume. He's been influenced by modern science and the empirical method, which stops at what is quantifiable, mm -hmm. invisible. And he says, that's as far as reason can take us. Reason can't jump from things in this world to their cause, to God. We cannot know God through reason. And he rejects the idea, for instance, that we can prove the existence of God or that we can know God exists naturally. So on the one hand, Kant is limiting reason. He sounds like he's therefore humiliating the person. And in the process of doing that, he's also making God more distant. So that phase of Kant, I would call his deistic phase. God becomes this distant thing that may have started the universe, but he's so remote that we can't know him. He's not intimate to creation. And then creation just becomes brute matter, brute, you know, kind of uh, stuff there for us to do what we want with. And that's the first moment. But then in the ethical portion of Kant's thought, he makes an absolutely opposite move. And in our, the moral law within us, and through our own freedom, we're capable of constructing our lives. We're capable of both knowing the good and achieving the good through our acts of the will. So much so that everything we need from Christianity is simply reduced in Kant to the, to the moral law. That's why he can write a book called Religion Within the Bounds of Reason Alone, right? Mm -hmm. And he denies the necessity for any kind of special revelation. And he denies the necessity for any kind of special grace. So that phase of Kant is now pantheistic, and which seems the opposite of deistic. But both of those movements, the pantheistic and the deistic, I think are, are pervasive in modernity right down to our day. The interesting thing on this is that even if he uses it for a morality check, as it yeah, were, yeah. what are the consequences? Yeah. And so what's kind of interesting, I think, is what Kant sort of does, and this is what all early modern thinkers do, and Haman already criticizes him for this. Basically, he kind of takes for granted Christian ethics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, he, and he thinks they're just kind of duh. You know, like, well, everybody knows this and everybody knows that. I mean, Kant was actually pretty upright in his moral life. You know, he, left a, he, he led a pretty conventional life. And, uh, and his morality, if you read his lectures on ethics, it sounds just like the ethics of Jesus, basically. 
And I, and I reminded here a little bit of Thomas Jefferson's opening line to the Declaration, where he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, you know, blah, blah, blah. And anybody who studied like the last 3,000 years of history are like self-evident to whom? <laughs> you know, like, right? <laughs> right? But, right. but they have to be self-evident. Otherwise, we have to give credit to God or some kind of special revelation. And then we can't really gain the autonomy that we want from God. So we have to kind of attribute these things as just like, oh, we just know these things, you know? And that's how Kant plays ethics. But as time unfolds, and the Christian influence, you know, the, the, the kind of halo of Christian influence that is there in the 1700s starts to diminish right down to the 20th century, all of a sudden, these Christian values that say all human beings have, uh, have inalienable rights given to them by a creator, well, Hitler certainly doesn't believe that, and neither does Stalin, mm-hmm. right? So forget about it. We just, you know, enemies of the state are dispensable, or unborn children in the modern world, right? Right. And I dare say that for some in the reading of history, especially in the United States, there was a time that even that thought was applied to, you know, for example, how can the Dred Scott case be judged as it was, given the fact of that preamble? It's so interesting, right? Chesterton makes a really interesting observation about this, actually, that I'll bring up. And he says, we often think that morality just keeps progressing. Like we just keep getting better. We're better people than we were in the 19th century and they were better than people in the 18th, et cetera, right? He said, in fact, the racists of the 18th century were racists who had uneasy consciences. You know, we can read the journals of Jefferson and he's kind of like, oh man, like how we're treating African slaves, does that really square up with my declaration of independence, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know? right. And, and so he's kind of a slaveholder with an uneasy conscience, if you will. But then Chesterton points out, by the time you get to the 19th century, now you have, quote, science on the side of racism. I mean, in The Descent of Man, Darwin says that Africans are closer relatives, biologically speaking, to apes than they are to Europeans. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, my racism is done with the, the, the sanction of, of modern science. I no longer have to feel guilty about it. So I think what happens in Dred Scott and the same thing that happened with the Native Americans many centuries earlier in the United States is you simply deny their humanity. You call them savages or you, you know, whatever. You take them out of the human species and now you can justify treating them the way you do. Some could say that that was the basis for the Aryan nation Absolutely. That Hitler yes. brought forward. And that's how you're able to justify in your mind. Yeah. Because it was backed up by the science of that time. Yes. Eugenics. Exactly. Not only to blacks, but to gypsies. Oh, to, yeah. Yeah. It, those who have physical handicaps, mental handicaps, and a whole nation of people. Right. Yeah. And that's the consequences of this type of, can we say it? Can we call it a, a de-evolution of thought? Uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, of course, because it's supposed to be about moral progress, you, you know what I mean? But, but, but when you start to exaggerate your ability as a finite human being to determine what's up and what's down without any help, or, you know, right, that's bound to get ugly. Well, then you get the system, not only what happened in Nazi Germany and the effects, but we can also see it when it becomes purely political, mm-hmm. when there isn't an, uh, an ideology that says one race is above all the other races and that needs to be purified. You end up having something that happened under a Stalin regime. 
yeah. in the Soviet Union at that time. And it, that just became pure politics. It was survival of the fittest. Yeah, it's interesting that I think one thing I think we all have to be careful of so that we can learn lessons from the past is not to simply think that, say, Stalin and his henchmen or Hitler and his henchmen were set out to do evil. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if, if it's, if it's easy to think of the German people who elected Hitler and then kind of uh, went along with what he did as just being like particularly uniquely evil. Mm -hmm. but they weren't evil. It was all in the name of good. I mean, I joke sometimes that our, our last two presidents both ran on, on campaigns Hitler would have been very comfortable with. Obama ran on change, right? So, so did Hitler. We need to make some changes to Germany, right? And then Trump ran on make America great again. And that's exactly what Hitler ran on, make Germany great again, <laughs> you know? And it's, they're, they're, you know, you're like, wow, you know, have we learned nothing? You know, I mean, change without a standard to measure it by is dangerous. That's right. Yeah. And, and a nationalism without a standard to measure it is dangerous, you know? So both of those things kind of, their heads crop up again in, in, the, in the 20 and 21st century in interesting and scary ways. The fact is, in all those cases, I would venture to say that in the hearts of many, they sincerely believed they were right. The, the measuring that uh, must be true because I so sincerely believe it's true. Yeah. Sincerity isn't necessarily <laughs> the great measure of what is ultimately for the good. And usually it's the good to do that. I mean, wasn't it John Paul that said we have freedom, but it's freedom to do good. Absolutely. That's right. To do good to the other. Yes. And this is going to be another interesting facet of what Baltazar means by the system. So he traces, if you, if you follow that second part of the book on the, the mm -hmm. philosophical system, he starts with Kant and runs all the way up through Marx. And then he kind of even says that even Heidegger who tries hard to get out of the system and tries to reawaken us to the manifestation of, of let's say the beauty of being or the mystery of being, let's say in Heidegger's case, he's trying desperately to get us uh, out of the modern system. But, but Balthazar kind of at the end says that Heidegger can't escape it either. And he has reasons for saying that, which are too complicated to get into right now. But, but let's just say we take Kant to Marx, and Balthazar does this beautiful job just in a few pages of tracing the logic of one step to the next, how it eventually leads to Marx. Because what happens after Kant is in all of the idealist systems, the human person simply gets absorbed into something much larger. So what happens in idealism is you just take God and you make God kind of the engine of the way history is going. So there's no longer any God that's transcendent. God has become totally now imminent in the world process. And the human spirit is the highest manifestation of God in that historical process. So essentially, human beings are little gods running around on earth, right? And if you're already a God, you don't need to be made a God through grace, or you don't need to die to yourself in order to become a God, right? You just are already God. Mm -hmm. and, and that... That, that goes all the way through German idealism, uh, and especially in Hegel's thought, who works in various ways to, you know, preserve the difference between absolute spirit and finite spirit, but I don't think he does a very good job of doing so. But then you say, well, how does Marx come out of all of this? Well, what happens in Marxism, which is really fascinating, because I think it's very dangerous, uh, even for us today, 
is people get reduced simply to players within a, a broader system and you're either on the side of the uh, victimizer or you're on the side of the victim. And all of history gets swallowed up into you know, the capitalist and the proletariat, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the bad exploiters and the, and the innocent exploited. And in Marx's theory is by a historical necessity, by an economic necessity, actually, capitalism will eventually undo itself. And when it undoes itself, all of the people that have the, have the money, will, that will be taken for them and it'll end up going to the hands of the proletariat. But Marx doesn't want to wait for history to play that out. It's going to take too long. And this is how he can justify revolution. The revolution just basically takes what's going to happen inevitably and makes it happen right here and now through violence, if necessary, and it will be necessary for Marx, right? So there is no Marxism without violence because you have to undo what the the victimizers have and give it to the victims. And that has to be done now. And of course, the the people that have the money aren't going to give it up without violence, right? Or if they have privilege or whatever you want to call it, it has to be taken. But what, what happens in the midst of all of that, and I, this is what I think you were getting at, is that individual freedom and individual accountability totally disappear. The individual totally goes away. And everybody just belongs to one of these two entities. And then the world becomes a war between these two entities. And, and that's, I think we're seeing a lot of that in current American politics. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, that becomes a part of a greater, uh, the only word I could think of is melu. I mean, it becomes a, a part of, of the everything. So it's not even just yeah. politics anymore. It happens in religion. And, and religions begin to fracture. Yes. The danger of it, it, it can also happen within what may seem like one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yes, because everything gets so politicized that even Catholics start to think of themselves first and foremost in political categories, either conservative or liberal, which, you know, I always tell people there's no liberal Catholicism. There's no conservative. There's only Catholicism, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and we know, and we can see what it is. If we, you know, kind of look at the tradition and, and, uh, and see what the church is doing, we can tell you what Catholicism is. There's not a version for me and a version for you. You know, that's Protestantism, maybe, <laughs> but, it, right. but it isn't Catholicism. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the reasons for this work, the moment of Christian witness. Yeah. Because what's happening for Balthazar in 1980 is he's beginning to see that fractioning, uh, the, the rupture is beginning what he sees right before his eyes. Yes, yes. And, and I think, okay, so let's remember the context again. And we talked about this last time is, is the Second Vatican Council has just ended. And now we're getting the application of the council. And there were a growing number of Catholics, even in the early 60s, who were just dying for Catholicism to make its peace with modernity, with the system, right? Mm-hmm. Without even knowing necessarily what the system was, they, they, were, they were dying for the church to become, quote, up to date. And this is, he throws out the word aggiornamento at the end there, that kind of, you know, updating the church, if you will. Of course, the problem, if you do that without discernment, you don't realize that many elements in modernity were explicitly intended to be anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in mm-hmm. his first letter on tolerance, uh, Locke says Catholics are, cannot be welcome in liberal regimes. They have to be killed. 
I'm thinking, this is a letter on tolerance? Uh, that's right. I mean, it's pretty clear. <laughs> right. Sorry, Locke is smart enough to know that there's something about a Catholic that is a problem for modernity. He's not stupid. He knows that Catholics are weird, that we do have this allegiance to an institution that is prior to our allegiance to the state. And that's what Locke can't deal with. But I worry what's happened to contemporary Catholicism is in various ways, we have all become guilty of making our first allegiance to the state. Mm -hmm. And then we scrounge around for the Catholic bits that we can take with us, you know, in whichever party we've chosen to sidle up to, you know, uh, and we, and we end up having to leave important bits behind because they don't fit uh, this or that version of American politics. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we think we have to be martyred. If I, if I just have this group of, let's say, conservative friends or this group of liberal friends, then I'm not going to ever have to appear foolish to the world. This concludes part three of our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser, discussing Hanser's von Balthasar's The Moment of Christian Witness. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit bonbalthazar.com. There, too, you can also access numerous audio excerpts from this book, along with others in the Balthazar Library. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will consider subscribing to this podcast and liking it on whatever platform you may be hearing it on. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about vonbalthazar.com and join us for the next episode of Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth.